In a few weeks' time, we're coming to Australia and New Zealand for the Cosmic Shambles live tour. Uh, we've got lots of guests there, including Helen Chersky, Matt Parker and Lucy Green, and lots of uh, musicians and comedians. If you'd like to know more about that, then go to CosmicShamblesLive.com. We're still giving away two boxes of books per episode, one to a Patreon supporter and one to a PayPal supporter. Slightly bigger box of books for the Patreon supporter. So if you listen to the end of this episode, you will find out who the two winners are. The people that I've seen who've become very, very wealthy, their skin has this sort of healthy quality that I don't understand like it's, I feel like they must get it's some. It's an exfoliator; they can clear their pores. Their pores aren't filled with poverty and stuff. That's the difference. It's, that's what it is. It's like a vitamin injection that's made out <laughs> that's of it, gold yeah. leaf. I think it's because what they do is uh, they just have they have ivory rubbed on their cheeks while they're asleep. <laughs> they don't even yeah. know. They wake up and they go, "My skin is <laughs> less human and yet more superior than it used to be." Yeah. And little their do they know. Does. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Every, they don't even know they employ an ivory demon. Anyway, uh, we're um, uh, the uh, always used to be my favourite kind of joke was to have anyway. I think it's after that old brilliant line in the the Simpsons. Um, hey, what's that going to be to Mister Burns? Just another ivory back scratcher. Hmm. And he was going to spend that money on an ivory back scratcher. Anyway, so uh, we've never done a bad Simpsons impression before. And we're not Your going impressions now. are very good. They're good. Thank you very much. And their and Simpsons now... impression is even better. Really <laughs> I, good. I should. Do, I like doing impressions, especially of obscure. 1930s scientists where a couple of people go that's actually quite accurate from the recording we heard at the British Library um, welcome it's your go actually isn't it I oh sorry hello um, welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles I am still weird from coming back from my trip from America um, but uh, we're in good spirits and <laughs> this is like a message from in one of those films where those people have been sent to space they'll never see their family again but they keep sending messages back little realising that the speed they've travelled the family oh, are long dead Robin has cultivated some tomato plants and I, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I guess today is the fantastic comedian and broadcaster Dame Baptiste hello hello guys thank you for having me it's my pleasure now we first met and it's weird this is one of the things that I find really strange it's like because I don't work the circuit very much anymore there's mm-hmm. people who you suddenly go but I just saw that someone was an open spot and now it turns out they're tremendously prolific and well-known and hugely well-reviewed. And then you go, oh, yeah, 10 years has passed because I'm an old man. <laughs> 10 years is just like a time when you climb up an oak tree, Josie. That's what it's like. That's like in um, Lanark, isn't it? Where there's this bit where the main character in Lanark goes out to get some milk. And when he comes back, all of his children have grown up and left home and he's missed their entire lives. Yeah, that is my life. So I don't buy milk. That was what I learned from Lanark. Um, So we'll start off just by talking about, well, in fact, because we haven't had a comedian on for ages, which is, at what point did you go, yeah, this is something I want to do? Um, Interestingly, it's after I read the autobiography of Malcolm X, which is kind of uh, written by Malcolm X and Alex Haley, but he died before he could finish the book. So kind of Alex Haley had to kind of improvise based on notes and drafts and stuff. But it was um, my the majority of my uh, literature intake was like commuter literature, so books that people read on the trains and stuff. And so I think as I read like free economics, um, and then had a, I had read another book given to me by a friend called Weapons of Mass Instruction by John Taylor Gatto, and then I think yeah, someone's dad had lent me the autobiography of Malcolm X and. There's, I mean, obviously you have you have ideas about stories and stuff, and and you know, obviously he's a massively inspirational uh, icon, 
but it was reading the book in detail, which I think I could encourage anybody to do and wouldn't be it. So, so there's no like supremacist rhetoric in it as well. It's really just an autobiography of his time and just his observations. And I think, yeah, it was, it was just, uh, just that whole sense of being free and, and, and not being uh, inhibited under any kind of, uh, yeah, any kind of paradigm of control or oppression. And I guess that parallel that with my experience at work, I was like, why don't you just do something I care about for once? And, you know, just reading, you know, just seeing the narrative from, you know, uh, Malcolm X and him being so relaxed and, yeah, being freer. And, and, and there's so many other aspects and not even just dealing with the debate and of the dichotomy of uh, race and the states. It was just all facets of oppression and, and just being a, a free spirit and a higher consciousness. And, yeah, it was... In retrospect, I, th I feel like I always wanted to do comedy, but had no idea how to pursue it and uh, felt I had some social and cultural obligations to be a different type of person because of how I was brought up and, you know, and and then being beholden to financial systems and, you know, the fact that we link our wealth to our self-worth. And, yeah, it was just getting to a point where I was like, none of these actually, things actually matter. And, and really, none of these things, you know, none of these commodities can buy you your you know, personal or spiritual freedom. So it's like, why don't you do something you actually care about? Um, something that no one else can control and nothing, and something that's not going to, you know, be a perishable asset in three years' time. And so, yeah, it's doing comedy that way. So That, by the yeah. way, is my favourite reason for doing comedy. Yeah. It's just the the fact that, because I, I think, because I'm so old and, like, started in the, like, about 1990 when I was 20 years old. Yeah. And now seeing that because comedy can be a career, yeah. so it can be part of your actual financial self worth. Very yeah, yeah. people can go, and it's it's that bit where you know sometimes when like at the beginning of Broadway, Danny Rose, where all the old men get together, you know Stuart Lee and all that, and <laughs> all sitting there doing impressions of people that we saw at the Ball and Banana in 1987, and uh, and you go that, but comedy is this incredible freedom. Yeah, it, it is. is this thing where you may well fuck up, and you may well, and it's yeah. it's it's, it's the destruction you feel yeah when you fail but that moment when you go the f i don't know if you have you ever had one of those moments where you failed doing something that you didn't even really like in comedy you didn't even really like that routine but you yeah. thought it might save you yeah i think uh, i think i got to a point where I, was, I felt the first two years of comedy they went okay and then critically probably struggled in terms of uh how you know how i was reviewed but then yeah, it's got to a point where I was like, I'm writing stuff I think works in rooms. It's like if I just completely isolate myself, spend time in my own head and start, you know, my craft just based on my own consciousness. And then that kind of had a result in a big change in my yeah. career and because it's my narrative entirely. And uh, yeah, and, and some positive uh, radicalization, I think, because um, prior to doing comedy, I probably wouldn't really have heard uh, an in-depth uh, description of feminism which is not I mean and for me I mean it's not a difficult thing to understand at all but you know I would I throughout you know any kind of normal job or my normal within my normal social circle I wouldn't hear a, a transgender narrative so not so hearing it from people in comedy and from people that are you know part members of these particular uh, subgroups of our society but actually hearing their voice directly as opposed to trying to form a perception based on mainstream media I just found a lot more rewarding so it's just found, it's become a lot easier for me to put uh you know some feminist some feminist solidarity in my material because i just found it a lot easier now i'm doing something i want to just contextualize anything i see or uh, perceive with critical thought as opposed to having to you know contextualize anything i see or think about things in terms of thinking it as a liberal or as a conservative and um 
a book I read about that was uh, was this uh, the book I said was which was uh, Weapons of Mass Instruction, which I found really helpful because it was like confirming stuff I kind of already knew. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's just a big part of my journey. Is just that I just find there's a lot of uh, a lot more rationalization that people do with, I guess, normal life processes where it's going to work and stuff, as opposed to if you kind of do what you want. So, like going back to one of the, another reason I did comedy was just like when people ha are in school, none of us kind of think about well I'm going to graduate and become a project manager or uh, a data admin administrator and all these other kind of ambivalent titles that we have in the service industry like people have you know we have much more grandiose ideas because we're not we don't feel limited when we're younger and it's just you get to an age where the idea is that you're supposed to suffocate these dreams or gag them and then become conformed to society and I was like well that's weird it's just, it's just, and it was just, it was just a, with, the, with the whole school thing with this book it was just like it was very basic things of like why are, why are we being taught to have to raise our hand if we have a contrary opinion to what authority has given it to us and and why do we have to be stratified by age and gender lines sometimes depending on school and why does it happen and and then after all of that it's now seeing my peers with kids now and send their kids to school and I, and they're like oh it's baby's first day of school like but well, you hated school and you know the outcome is at some point you're going to have to your child's going to have to rationalize their dreams and stuff at some point you're okay with that so for me it was just like I'd rather be able to be honest and use creative energy for something else rather than create a lie and at least I can tell, you know, children, honestly, I tried something I wanted to do. may not have worked out, may have worked out, but what I was able to do is I did it. So, you know, and that, that will give you peace of mind. And, you know, if you look at so many aspects of uh, psychology now and, you know, the spectrum of body dysmorphia in contemporary, in a developed world is so vast that I think a lot of it just relates to people just doing what they think they should do or acting how they think they should act as opposed to acting how they want to. And, uh, yeah. Also, like, I didn't realise that your even your start point with stand-up was from such a political perspective. And even now it's like, it, it's quite like, it makes me feel very kind of thrilled and excited about the comedy circuit that, like, yeah, all these elements are so true of it, that it is really yeah. deeply political still. And it, even it, just it, like, it always was. It, it was just that it was a build. There was just a big period, I think. When I first started doing comedy, before I did it, it was kind of like, I probably saw lots of stuff wrong with society and would get into, and would tie it and get into arguments with people who yeah. were kind of writing these ideas and justifying what I felt might be morally objectionable behaviour by saying, yeah, but it makes money though. And then that became their justification. So I started distancing myself from those kind of people. And then it was just like the idea because the argument in terms of diversity and stuff has always, it's kind of gone on since I started doing comedy. And I, and so far as the aesthetic of whoever was doing comedy, that didn't bother me, but it was just what people were talking about. So at a time where I started comedy around 2010, mm -hmm. but I had dabbled in stuff and looked at stuff from about 2007, eight, which is around the same time as like the credit crunch. Mm -hmm. So then for people, for there to be this lack of almost kind of like, you know, you know, doomsday screeching from comics who, you know, we're, we're supposed to be quite separate from the rest of entertainment in terms of how we give an almost quasi-journalistic perspective of what happens in the media and stuff. Yeah. And then our own opinion that there were a lot of people that were acting like everything was okay and it really wasn't. So in my eyes, it's like a lot of stuff where we've arrived now and, you know, arguably might be the apex of our society now and of this generation. Like, I'm not surprised we've gotten to this point. It's always it's always a thing. People say that, you know the world is supposed to, was supposed to end at the turn of the century with Y two K, and maybe in the physical sense it didn't. But then at the same time, you had like you know Trump coming to power, and then Murdoch kind of consolidating more power by like phrases like Islamophobia and and uh, 
like celebrity news and cellulite. Yeah. Like no one really heard those things until you know the turn of the century. But it's hanging. That's really um, that's really apocalyptic. Do you genuinely feel that bleak about the future? But it's not. Country? It's not bleakness. It's, it's just that it's all that's happened is, is that because there's no precedent for a lot of the systems we've grown up in. Yeah. We feel like there's no alternative. Sure. So people are like, oh, communism doesn't work. So you know that's proven now. But then capitalism really is also a faith-based system where it's based on you know finite resources that will run out at some point you know and also you know the idea of a free market is that you know it's open to all entrants the barrier to entry means anyone can enter and they can thrive within that economy but then our banks all failed but then this phrase too big to fail came out yeah, but that's yeah. not that's that's not applicable to the model of capitalism of something between being too big to fail and then moving forward from that now you have you know, essentially some of the larger financial institutions which are be, being kept buoyant by the public because the tax. It's that thing of yeah. um, socialism for the rich and capitalism for exactly, the Exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, then at the, and then on the same side, the extreme form of communism you see in somewhere in North Korea, but then that still operates with, in terms of like, you know, their power structure, that's dynastic to an extent, almost like monarchistic. So mm. it's not that different. It's, I mean, and uh, so, so I guess one of the best books I've read to, in terms of describing this is uh, 1984 and more specifically uh, theories on oligarchical collectivism because I read that because most of the time I felt obligated to read stuff at school but that was the one thing I read at my you know at my leisure and I feel that in terms of describing you know the proletariat and the bourgeoisie and the ruling class not changed has not changed and probably is even more is, is it probably clearer now than it has ever been mm. but you know it's, I, I grew up in the 80s where I remember living in the north with my family where even having meat was luxury. You know, if you're working class, being able to have meat, which is why you, when you go to a chip shop in the north, they do bits and stuff like that because yeah. if you couldn't afford fish, that was the closest, nearest thing you could have. But now it's ubiquitous that people have all this consumerism and, you know, going from capitalist to consumerists, it's just, you know, it's not so much bleak, it's just that we've developed this uh, vanity, like most civilizations do, that their existence is the height of human existence. So when we say we're reaching the end, we're reaching the end of an age, doesn't necessarily mean it's, the end of humanity but if we all concede that you know natural selection and evolution are a scientific fact then we are getting to a point where maybe we reach the apex of this society and we need to evolve but it's just a lot of people we just have as humans we just have this idea that our evolution runs in parallel with technological advance and that's not how it works technology the gaps between inventions are closing but we haven't changed that much we still can't we're vegan which is fine but we still can't digest cellulose which is why your appendix is still dormant for example so you know, yeah. So I've become a lot more, I guess, pensive in that respect and try to approach everything now with critical thought. And I guess it's been being able to kind of rationalise my thoughts in terms of, like, so for example, when I realise I realize now that when I was, I guess, had more of the disposition of being a lad and being around people more like that, if you read a story in the tabloid about, like, this woman's divorcing this uh, footballer, so she's going to get half of his fortune. And before I'd be like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> Why? She didn't do this and she didn't do that. But, you know, it's it's been able to detach myself from this uh, mob mentality where it's now like, yeah, but then for every one woman that might get this supposed windfall, there is a plethora of single women who are stigmatised for their mistake in terms of you know conceiving a child. So... And also it's like, and then, and then really in a patriarchy, who really has determined that your self-worth is determined by how much money you have? So it's like, it's like when even, it's like even when there's always the occasional tabloid expose of this woman's an escort, she makes millions from from making men buy her stuff. And everyone's like, this is ridiculous, how does she? But then where, who has created this paradigm where 
you know, we've commoditized the female form and we've also made it that a man's worth is measured on his income. Mm. So it just makes you a lot more peaceful with these kind of things anyway. And you never feel threatened by anything. And so these isms don't really threaten me because they, they, they're all cyclical. And like I said, we're, it's more to do with human beings and their self-image where we think that we've reached this height of our civilization. And really we haven't where we, you know, we've worked out how to look at videos and stuff on a phone, but you know, we still haven't worked out why, I guess, you know, people get obese or people could die of a broken heart or it not really change much, so. Do you, when you're, when you're working on, I mean, at what point, was it right from the start when you were thinking about what you were going to do on stage, mm -hmm. that there was an importance about the content, that the content went beyond the importance of will it get a laugh? Because I remember once watching a comic saying, oh, the first point I'm thinking about is, oh, I've had a funny idea, and then, and mm -hmm. I actually think a lot of the comics I know start off by going, I want to make a thing about that. Yeah, yeah. How do I make I it funny? Yeah. How can I make it entertaining? And then, I mean, I, I'm guessing, but you can explain that when, mm -hmm. I know that when I go and see one of Josie's shows. Thank that, you. Uh, that, hang on, you never know where <laughs> this is going to go. But no, but I know that there are people leaving who... No, people been, don't leave until the end. No, no, not until <laughs> the end. Not until not after the second encore, right? <laughs> Bloody hell, this is taking longer than I thought. I wish I'd never brought... I'm Why just saying, if you, you come to my shop... What a disaster. <laughs> but there is a hope, and, and with, you know, a lot of the things that friends of mine do, that when people are leaving, they've got a new idea in their head, yeah. or an idea, maybe something that they've before felt an outsider about and not realised that they are not the only one, and that they, they are taking the show away with them. It's not merely the laughter in the room. Yeah. So did you, from the outset, were you thinking... Right, I might not be able to do this yet because I've got first of all get up a couple of steps. Mm -hmm. But I want there to be ideas within this that are beyond just it's a joke. Yeah, I was exactly as you said, like with, with your peers, is that it's. Uh, I mean, I've had instances where I might perform at a club where you know it's a lot rapid to get to a punchline, and you know you might only scratch the surface in terms of some topics you deal with. But then for me, it was kind of like I spent a lot of time in terms of the procrastination before you do something you want to do. I think a lot of people have is that I spent a lot of time researching other comics and trying to look at their journey and I think and I've always been largely influenced by uh, American acts that deal with like race relations and deal with like society so I guess I kind of went from you know Chris Rock and then worked backwards to like Eddie Merson and Richard Pryor and then got to someone like Lenny Bruce who you know compared to you know today's comics or the standard of comics he was you know very much vilified for being obscene um, and I think he says uh and then he said, like, I think he's got a quote saying about like society being sick and obviously laughter being that medicine. And I, I think I probably, uh, yeah, I, I probably kind of took that in the most. And um, it's like you say, I, I just think it's like you say, uh, there are some instances where I might think I might want to get a laugh, but because so much of what we do is based on projecting your own consciousness, it's like I suppose if I did get a cheap laugh, then it's a very small victory in terms of it's a it's a it's a, it's a, it's a drop in the ocean. So I guess. I feel more about my journey in general is that at some point I'm gonna have to look back and about what I've done, so I'm gonna have to stand by that anyway. But at the same time, and at the same time, it's uh, some stuff might seem quite, you know, it might be superficial in terms of observations. But then, I guess when the writing style way it works now is that if I did a five minutes, so if if there was five topics for each minute, then at the same time in my head I was like, yeah, but at the same time, if I needed to do a five minute on each of one of those topics, I could do that as well. So with my friend, we always do, it's almost like uh, it's like a bonsai analogy where it's like we're still preening and still trying to refine stuff and still get more of a thread out of it and being understanding that you know especially art this is it's, it's continuous and it's always going to be dynamic so there is every statement i make or every idea i have can always be uh influenced and can always evolve and kind of always expand and and for the yeah and, and i guess for the purpose is that you know now that i've 
come out as a artist and a creative and uh and then are now embracing that part of 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 my being then i have to imprint it on other people and i think that's just it's just so if we are commenting on society like it's holographic principle that i guess some part of me was enlightened for you know for my for my benefit and then you have to pass it on to audiences as well and like i said it's it's a big part it's, getting the laugh is very good um but sometimes it's i think it's important for you to be chronicling uh the times and and like you said most importantly sowing a seed where in some cases people aren't even aware of what uh you know of the real subtext of what i may have said and they might laugh and they understand the joke and that's fine mm-hmm. and like i said it's after the laughter dies down that they, they have to take something away and uh yeah i guess all art is supposed to stir that kind of emotion anyway in the first place and i think that's a big part uh of the principle for me is that it's uh it's people say you know it's, it's, the, it's the i didn't think of it like that or i'm glad someone else thinks the same thing or i was thinking that and it's uh yeah tr- i guess trying to trying to stimulate an unlearning as opposed to the stuff that we learn subconsciously through habit where did you start with lenny bruce because it's quite difficult i would say for people like i think he was just uh, like of uh, the film for me with dustin yeah. hoffman i mean i is... i only just picked up stuff on like wikipedia and a few clips here and there and mm-hmm. stuff that he was saying so I mean, didn't take a lot of research, but it, it was just enough, like you said, for me as an audience at the, member at the time to be like, someone is saying what I'm thinking, mm-hmm. and and it's and it's as relevant then as it is now. Have you heard that recording where the police literally come in while he's talking? Yeah, yeah. it's incredible. I would, if you're if you're a listener, I would urge you to seek it out because you, he's literally on stage and you can hear the police being like, "You're gonna have to come with us." And yeah, yeah, like, it's, it's, <laughs> cra- it's crazy, and then and then like I said, it's you juxtapose that with what happens now and what passes for entertainment or what's sure. considered obscene then it's it's crazy but yeah it was a, it was definitely a big part a, a big influence of just um so you just, yeah one to do one one it's, it's it, i think it's, it's got to mean more than because if, even if you do become successful and you, and you know your success might be represented like numerically but then then it becomes a job and that's that's the fear is i i had to move away from that because the whole thing about a job is that even me is like it's going to the idea that uh prostitution they say is the oldest profession but then i would argue that it's one of the only ones because really as human beings in society most of our occupation was subsistence living you grew food because you needed to eat and then you'd exchange that in a system of commerce in order for you to get water or clothing and this is how it works and then the only difference between prostitution and all the other things is that prostitution works in that it's uh it's a want but it's hidden within a need and that's why it's an unbeatable model, and that's and also and in a lot of, and prostitution, in terms of its definition of you're really compromising a part of your being for money. And how many people do that anyway? Most people here go to work where you're now. I mean, you're called a human resource for, as a start for a start, and then most things you do might be something you might morally object to, or something that doesn't really fulfil you personally or physically or benefit you um, physically, but you do it for money. And so, how are you different from a prostitute, really? So. Yeah, I, I just think it's kind of. Um, so yeah. I I feel like quite a lot of your like your ethos is kind of it's like countercultural and it's kind of stepping away from society in lots of ways. Like it's yeah. it's stepping away from like capitalism and capitalist exchange, but also you like talking about uh, st- even like stepping away from the education system and stuff like that. How do you how do you counteract? Because I think with things like that, sometimes it feels quite even though it's empowering it's yeah. quite alienating or it's almost yeah. quite lonely because you then feel that you're set apart yeah do you see what i mean like what do you what do you like to read and who do you feel inspires you and who do you feel uh, are your kind of people that are your society do you know what i mean yeah i, I think it's um 
I think that's that's the, I think that's the reason why it's easy for people to find kinmanship in comedy because like it's a very solitary art form and it's a lot of people that, like yourself that might be considered pariahs and a lot of time whenever we qualify ourselves in our opening set we always say I know what you're thinking and then we have to have this whole thing about dispelling what myths might exist about based on our gender or our ethnicity so it's I think it's a lot easier to identify with other comics yeah. in that respect so that makes it easier um, and then at the same time as well it's it's like I said it's, it's the idea of having this critical thought where if someone may have not arrive at the same conclusions as I have, it's not having a superiority complex about it sometimes and realising that people take time to be woken up from these things, especially when they've been seen to benefit from a, an archaic system. It's hard for people to get sh to get out of that rut, basically. So it is quite lonely, but then it's like, I guess I've been always been used to my own company anyway. So like I said, when I, I always try to be as reflective as possible in terms of the experience that led me to doing comedy. And it's like, I was a kid in primary school. Like, I didn't mind sitting by myself and doodling and not hanging out with other kids. It didn't really bother me. So. What did you read when you were a little uh, kid? Um, well, I think everyone started off reading like Roger Redhat and Jennifer Yellowhat and Billy Bluehat. And then one day I, I picked up like a Beowulf and I was like, yeah, this is much better. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, and that's the kind of thing I was into is just, I guess like a lot of Norse mythology and mm -hmm. uh, I liked a lot of Greek mythology as well. So I didn't read the Iliad as it existed at first. So I, it was just more like a kind of pitch, it was like a more reducing for kids, accessible sure. to kids. And then I wanted to delve more into it. And then that went, and then I went from, read a lot of non-fiction. Because I guess, I guess it was a thing of, I valued my imagination whereby I probably didn't need to depend on somebody else's. That was the kind of disposition I had as a child. Like, well, and also I read a lot of comics. So I was like, well, I, that, the fiction part's covered very nicely. So I was, I mean, I read like Judy Bloom and stuff and, because it was around. What was the one that created the shocker? Oh! Because I used to work in a exactly. children's bookshop and there was one it's book forever. where we did not know that. The, is it forever? It's got sex right, in it. What, oh yeah. my God. That was a very important experience as an 11 year old girl because everyone knew what page the sex was on yeah. and everyone would be like, page 73. And you just flick through, get right to it. Yeah. See, whereas this is, uh, I suppose, the difference. In that sex scene, uh, was one of them afterwards uh, macheted or eaten by an animal that had mutated into being some kind of giant creature? Um, no, no. See, that's the difference, I think, for your generation <laughs> and mine. For most of us, you know, as 47-year-old, the first thing, the first novel that was kept in the woodlands was the one where someone had sex and then was mutilated. Yeah. So I think that's created a very that negative <laughs> attitude. I think yeah. we were about the same age. We yeah. must be. But I feel like our generation got off slightly. Yeah, you yeah. Did, yeah. Did, yeah, yeah. So then you, so you started reading that kind of thing. And Imagine every time you have sex, halfway through, going, hang on a minute, I think I can hear a giant rat. What are you doing? Sorry, it's just I read this book when I was 12. It's a disaster. I mean, that's, there's loads, maybe not as drastic as giant rats, but yeah, there's a lot of misconceptions about... Uh, sexual congress that people get from books anyway so don't feel you're alone there it's our generation is more about hyperbole about our, <laughs> our sexual prowess nowadays i think i'm glad i never finished just with all those giant rat fears always <laughs> running away <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> um do you now for, sorry joe so you're gonna ask something yeah, I got caught up with the giant no, oh yeah I, we sort of read what i read next so yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah uh so i used to read uh 2000 ad oh yeah yeah and then i got into kind of comic books that way and i and i think i liked comic books because the uh I guess the animation and stuff appealed to me, uh, being into drawings and, and the artwork. And then the language used and the vocabulary used in comic books was quite advanced for kids to read. So, you know, yeah. it cleared towards young adult and stuff. And so, uh, yeah, I guess I like I like that a lot. And I guess so. 2000 Deals are a bit more mature in terms of them compared to like your Marvel comics and stuff. And um, yeah, it was, just, it was just always just a nice escape. And, and I again, love that 2000 AD, which would, would have started when I was eight, I think. And it was... See, my son finds it really weird because he yeah. was born in 2007. So he <laughs> goes, 
why is this called 2000 AD? Yeah. That was oh. years ago. Yeah. And it really, because of course also the first, you know, 2007 to now is an enormous amount of time. Yeah. Him. So when I give him, a, you know, but it's just that, that moment, as you're saying, the, the imagination in some of those things. Some of the, yeah. I, th I think the, the cartoon gallery at the moment near the British Museum's got mm -hmm. a Future Shocks exhibition mm. of all of those, those oh, things. Cool. And you're right. I wonder what it is about the comic book which can really the way it can condense ideas like Daryl yeah. Cunningham's book Psychiatric Tales mm -hmm. and Scientific Tales Psychiatric Tales is amazing he was a psychiatric nurse he also then had some psychiatric problems himself just a series of what appeared to be very simple comic strips about mental illness, the treatment of people who are mentally ill, etc. Yeah. And yet you go, and he did another one called Super Crash, which is about Ayn Rand and her influence oh, on... Uh, Wankers. On, well, what was his name? <laughs> who, who was his green, not, not, not Greenwald, what's he called? Who was the... Oh, uh, Glenn Greenwald. No, no, not Glenn Greenwald. The, no, the guy who was the head of the... Uh, um, you're going to tell me... You're gonna American tell guy, me. American guy, Banks. The, he was. He's the one who admitted he went... Isn't that... Uh, Glenn no, Greenwald? no, Glenn Greenwald is a journalist. Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's the one. I, yeah, but I've, I've read him. Are you thinking of the guy who did the uh, or the interest fiddling? Oh, uh, no, he, wasn't he, he was the one who was basically going, everything's fine and we can continue to oh, deregulate. And, yeah. oh, I made some bad decisions. I shouldn't have said those things. <laughs> yeah. um, but he was heavily inspired by Rand. And Super Crash, which covers how... Ayn Rand's ideology then went into these people who became kind of, you know, to some extent fundamentalists in the Bush administration and yeah. in other places. Again, you go, it's, it's just a comic book, but some re it doesn't look dense. Yeah. You leave it and you go, a lot of ideas. Psychiatric tales in yeah. particular. But, but I mean, it's, it's, like, it's even the same as like, you know, The Simpsons being the longest running show mm. in, the, in America, um, despite being animated. And I've said this to people a million times, for you to get, the for, if you want to distill Americana, and the American experience, that's probably the best thing to watch. And the density, <laughs> even in one episode of The Simpsons, yeah. is a bit overwhelming sometimes. It's massively like layered. The levels of the jokes. Yeah, yeah there's yeah. episodes I used to watch when I was like, mm, circa like 1990. Yeah. And you think it's funny because animation and Bart's rude. Yeah. Going back to it now, like, and then it's then it's after that it's then it's the nostalgic references which you love as well, and because a lot of American iconography they refer back to, and then yeah. finally now it's just. Some of the commentary in The Simpsons and, and just, just the archetypes in there, yeah. like having like, you know, an incompetent police force and then having, you know, Lenny and Carl and it's this uneasy but almost homoerotic relationship between the white and black working class yeah. and that they get on but sometimes it's weird and it's so close. And I mean, that mirrors like, you know, slavery when there was potentially going to be revolts from, you know, African slaves and the working class, then that's when the division was, it created another hierarchy within that, that hierarchy so I mean they reflect is that really reflected and also like you know, you know the American man is kind of conservative uh, but you know basically a skilled worker in terms of Homer Simpson as well and it's just I just think it's just amazing and, and so much stuff rings true and like, even for me to like as Mr. Burns being an industrialist and his ideas are so out of date and like so it always seems so caricatured but nowadays you know you, see, you know in a post banking crisis and Koch brothers and yeah. you know and Trump it's it's, it's 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 so it's almost prophetic in in terms of how it's depicted like American life and there's an episode of the Simpsons when Lisa becomes president where it's like an alternate timeline where she says where um, I was really like what yeah. how well it was mean by said at the time you know would even just considering female candidates for presidency which is oh. as crazy as it sounds but then it's just a there's one part where they're in the country's in debt, partially to China, and there's one part where they're like, "What about the nighttime basketball? That was a good initiative." And it's like, "Yeah, but we just created a generation of criminals that don't need sleep." And it's and it's just um yeah, and it's just talking about you know just how closer um you know all empires fall. And this is what I mean. It's like I don't feel isolated because 
these uh, patterns are very cyclical and you know if we're going if we're going to you know have this uh solidarity and this idea of natural selection and stuff then anyone that's who behaves and you know capitalism and race they both exist uh as opposed to the idea of natural selection so if we're going to continue to hit that then if you're not going to evolve then you will become extinct so it's just the way to, it's, just, it's just an easy way to rationalize everything it's, it's nothing i'm not seeing anything or opining anything that i have not seen before yeah um which is always and that's why and that's how art works so it chronicles these things at a time and then it's reflected again and again yeah so it's why people should pay attention to it because yeah. But it is also still natural really selection. Stephen Jay Gould appears in The Simpsons. Who's Stephen the Jay Gould? Great writer. On, I'm so sorry. Uh, no, 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 don't be sorry. No, no, he's a, he was a great essayist on uh, on biology, on genetics, on on many different. He wrote a huge number of. I mean, incredibly prolific. He had a big spat with uh, Richard Dawkins over punctuated equilibrium in uh, uh, evolution. That and, just uh, But it's a really. <laughs> but the fact that he pops up as, yeah. as a guest star. And John Waters, who we talked about the other day. Oh. By the way, they found out it was Alan Greenspan. Why That's didn't I him, find yeah, that? yeah. Ridiculous. <laughs> we, we really kept the suspense going there for a while. Sorry, the worst part gonna... is people listening will be like, Alan Greenspan. Alan Greenspan. It's oh, Alan, Greenspan. Alan Greenspan. <laughs> but I, I think it's funny how sanguine you are about like global catastrophe because you're a little bit like, mate, this is what has to happen in this. It, it, it's inevitable. I mean, even even if we ignore, uh, you know, scientific research stuff like that. I mean, at some point, the sun is going to go nova and envelop the whole galaxy. So I went through a phase <laughs> where I think I was genuinely so self-important that I was like. <laughs> What's the point in anything? Because it's all going to get burned up by the sun in five billion years. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> but some people have that disposition as well. Like, what's the point in anything? So then, the idea, I guess, is that if you're a sentient being of free will, then you need to give yourself purpose. Then, but it's just you have to detach yourself from these ideas of doing what you think you should do and do what you want. And uh, even then, it's like I guess matter can't be created or destroyed. So even if it does happen, then I'm still going to be alive, technically speaking. So yeah, until obviously yes. there will be that point where everything's expanded and there's just no yeah no planets anymore. There's just a cold there's expansion of matter, cold exactly. And in which case, you know, it means that we've now become if the most basic forms of matter, and then for our collective consciousness, and then it's from ashes to ashes, dust to dust, beginning to the end. And even though that's been romanticized in terms of like you know religious texts, it's still it's very close to science in terms of the fact that where we come from is where we're going to end up again. And Yes, but this is all too calm for me because I'm like, yes, but I very much like my body and my life, and I don't want it to be threatened yeah, in yeah, any way. Exactly. Yeah, and, and you know, but you know, at the same time, I I was just, I'm the same as well. But at the same time, I have to, I become I guess yeah, that calm comes from the fact that there's probably been a greater version of myself that has existed before, and or well, it's like Bill Hicks says, we're all experiencing life subjectively. Yeah, you know, it's just a ride. Just a, just a yeah, it's just a it's just a ride, and you know. And again, it's just me being a romantic as an artist and someone who's a comic. But for me, so far as the Bill Hicks story, he probably didn't need to do anything else. Because if you're making uh, observations and trying to reach a higher consciousness in terms of your observations and getting better and having a high attitude for it, then inevitably you are going to gonna you're going to go past, scratch the surface of our skin and what divides us and our ideas and our thoughts on this matter, and we'll get to just consciousness. And then, I mean, in defining consciousness is just energy and exchange of impulses. So him getting to that point as an observational comic of saying this is who, this is what we are really, and we're all from our collective consciousness, and it, whether it's the Big Bang and it's just all expanding molecules that have in tight fields of energy, where we will return immediately. But if you knowing that, then there's nothing else you need to say on stage. Yeah. Also, it's if you're doing sorry, no, 
No, but I was going to say, if you're doing stuff you you like, that's part of it, yeah. isn't it? If you go, so again, because we haven't had our Kurt Vonnegut moment, <laughs> it's his uncle, isn't it? His, his uncle used to like to say, uh, if this isn't nice, what is? <laughs> you know, yeah. and that, all John the Measurer, when he died, you know, the great uh, actor from, from Dad's Army. Yeah, yeah. And his last words were, you know, it's all been rather lovely. <laughs> and, you know, that, yeah, yeah. all of those and, things. And that's I mean, it's such, such it's, it's, it's succinct and to the point but it, you know what he's describing is that you know the experience of life and matter and you know it's like I said it's, it's a like self I'm like self I enjoy my life and my clothes and stuff like that as well but then there is going to be some point where people are like you know this is the, that's how they dressed it's like it's <laughs> what they ask with trees like what's wrong with these people do they not know they need to photosynthesize so you know I'm I'm calm in the fact that this existence will be considered obsolete and this will be considered archaic by another civilization somewhere but at the same time based on that principle of, you know, being a subatomic particle, I'm going to be a part of that anyway, and at some point I'll be reconstituted. And so it's just, it's a perfect disposition, I think, to have as a comedian, because it means you can't take anything too seriously. Well, Luther, it's like, it, it's it's like a macro version of the micro version of, yeah. if I die on my ass, I have to do another gig tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know right, I mean? exactly, yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, just, it's just, I guess, it's, uh, I guess this kind of whole, thought process and hopefully it's a, a journey that's going to lead me to more enlightenment is that it comes from the fact that when I first started doing comedy like some of the best advice I got from my seniors or people with a bit more tenure was just the first thing you have to do is be able to laugh at yourself and not take yourself too seriously otherwise you'll struggle with this mm-hmm. so it's always so, so for me it's it, there's the it's the uh it's the professional attributes of being able to dispense away from being inhibited by titles and ideas and stuff and it doesn't and it doesn't mean to say that you know I I'm opposed to any kind of labeling like i have solidarity in being like a black male or i have solidarity with being having liberal leaning or I, you know I, i'm i'm close with that but in the grand scheme of things it's uh these are these are just ideas i think they they served to the evolution of of humanity as opposed to having to be able to quantify what party i'm a part of or who, who i'm associated with because but any, like, because for me it's this association is somewhere that comes from the fact that if i get rid of logic and and, and, well, not saying logic, but if I get rid of my ego and and and, and fear, where a lot of these ideas are manifest of, who, for example, people opposed to feminism, for example, it's like any rational human being or logical human being knows that our our particularly our species needs women. So the happier they are, it's not a hard thing to grasp. Every man defaults to a woman until you are in later stages of gestation, where the X chromosome begins to shorten and becomes a Y why we're born with nipples for example you know even when you're born as a man your gonads are still in your stomach until they drop finally so you're still defaulting to a woman anyway scientifically research shows you that mortality amongst women being born is lower than for males you know we can't every man on the planet has cried for a, a woman's care and attention and mercy because you need to be nursed when you're born anyway so again knowing that again the, the idea of, of feminism had, and, and the fact that it's even a discussion now is probably that I find that crazy but Every man should embrace it more than anybody else because, if we, really, if we were one that's dead and dominated, we'd be dead. Was that great? Was it the congressman uh, who is an Illinois congressman? I mm-hmm. think the one who made a little speech about why he wouldn't be at Trump's inauguration, why he would be walking with his wife at the women's march. Yeah, and it was uh, it was a it was a uh, yeah beautiful speech. We've run out of time Wait, before we got go on. Have we got a minute, Trent? Yeah, we can have oh, a minute. Okay. Of course because you can. I want to ask you. What do you read at the moment? Do you read a lot of kind of philosophy stuff, political stuff? Do you read? Um... I, I, I I read everything I can kind of get my hands on and try and get a perspective from everybody because I'm just trying to work out where everyone's coming from. And mm-hmm. But at the same time, I don't want to say that I um have to caveat what I'm saying and be like, well, I've got to think about it in terms of 
you know, some people just feel that way and they're conservative. Some people want to Brexit and that's why I have to, like, I get at the same time, I'm still, I know at my core, I'm still a, a romantic and an artist in that. No, you're wrong. <laughs> and I don't, I don't, I'm not scared to say that to people, but it's what, like, I don't want to get locked up and stuff online because of why to from a supremacist or, a, you know, or a, or a misogynist. No, it's wrong. Mm. Scientifically, what you're doing is wrong and your ideas are rooted in your ego and your fear of a loss of control. And I'm not scared to say that to anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I do read stuff and try to contextualize what people are saying, whether it's from a tabloid perspective and stuff. But then even then, it's I guess I studied business which, at uni, which is social science. So when I think about something, is, the first thing I think is that where's the money trail? Because I mean, it's, I mean, the, even when we discuss about what we're reading and stuff, the news is a very strange thing in that people think the news is organic. And, and most people, your laity will think, well, if it's on the news, it must have happened, it must be true. But then people will get their bills for electricity and water and gas, which are all organic substances or compounds that have come from the earth and no one should have any patent on them or be able to distribute them at a cost. But everyone's like, well, you have to pay your bills. But why am I paying for something that someone else didn't create? They didn't create electricity or harness its power. It's, they, just, they just control my access to it. Same as water, this, that covers five-eighths of the planet's surface. So what, how is someone in control of that? But people will have this idea that news is organic, whatever it's, they're reporting news, in, because it's happened. No one has this idea that there's a commercial interest behind whatever you consume in the news. Sure. But then people think it's okay that we spend money on utilities. So I guess, yeah, I, I'm just, I, I read as much as possible because I also want to arm myself to be able to, yeah, just challenge even those very basic ideas. Now, you had an interesting and and very eloquent rebuttal to a white supremacist there, an imagined one. Josie, just before we came in here, <laughs> you told us about your rebuttal yesterday. Yeah. What was that one on social okay. media? The first No, I like it. I like I'm it. not I here like to belittle you. I like okay. it too, Josie. I will read it to you. to the rebuttal. I will read it to you, and this is what happened. Now, before I, to defend myself, I put a you picture You don't need up to defend on, yourself. No, I put a picture up on my Instagram which I very much enjoyed, of some very nice young women that I met at the march who had a very collection of funny signs. One of them being, get a moral compass, Teresa, you fucking melt. Or, Teresa May, uh, you fuck off. Uh, two fascist shits don't make a right. And then one of them says... <laughs> That's good. Yeah, it's good, right? <laughs> then good. one of them says, being complicit in racism makes you a racist, right? So I put, I put a photo of me with these women, and my caption was, these ladies were awesome. Somebody told me off because they said I was being hateful and I was like, I don't think I am, but there we go. Then uh, the person who, now firstly they've blocked me now because, but they've got, uh, the picture of them is them dressed as a Viking. And I looked yeah. on their thing and they are obviously a white supremacist. Yeah, and of course. They, their bio is saved, full stop, conservative activist, full stop, not rolling over for leftist ideology, full stop. Pissed me off as well because it's like, oh, if you fucking love Northern Europe so much, they're socialist as fuck over there, so deal oh, with right, it. Exactly. Anyway, so... Can I just say that's the worst thing to say someone? If you love the Vikings so much, then why don't you go and uh, live in Scandinavia? No, that's a lovely thing. No, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, no, you you'll spoil it. You'll ruin it. You don't deserve that's it. really building up. Society. Kind of um, being complicit in treason makes you a traitor is what Woof <laughs> told me. So I said, uh, the royal family just told me to tell you to go fuck yourself right up the dick hole. You're sincerely a libtard cuck, right? For a bit of fun. Then he replied, lol. Uh, Josie Long, another classy spelt wrong, tolerant leftist hater. How unusual, lol. So I said, not my words, mate, the words of my beloved royal family. Don't hate on me because they told you to go fuck yourself right up the dick hole and you were such a snowflake you couldn't go. I'm sorry. I just no, don't, no, don't, don't apologise. And I, I know we haven't got much time. I want to say something very quickly to those people who may have 
a uh, a slightly less experience of white supremacy than I may have had, uh, uh, also transgenerationally. Um, if somebody was supreme, they wouldn't make it illegal for you to uh, have assembly. If they knew that they were naturally predisposed to be superior to you, they wouldn't make it illegal for you to read or go to school or suppress your rights. And the idea of being a son of a wolf or you're feeding off of a wolf is bestiality. <laughs> so, what? But is this? But I mean. So far as like talking about you know social healing and reading stuff, like most recently I was uh, read uh, some KRS One wrote and he was talking about white supremacy and, that, the, and he said the problem is it's the use of the word supremacy because mm. really it's it's a faith based system mm. because their idea is that you know in order for them to continue is it's what you're suggesting is inbreeding, which flies in the face of science. Science. Yeah. If you're what you're talking about is inbreeding in order for you to sustain your lifestyle or your position in life, or you know your at your current rate of consumption, then we have a generation of of inbred white supremacists who have all these genetic defects and no more resources left because you know being a skilled worker and and agriculture has been obscured to you especially somewhere like in America for so many years and it's the idea and and that's the whole that's the whole overarching narrative for all of this talk is that we can't go back never going to be able to go back but the thing is, you can't fit that in an Instagram comment, so you have to yeah. say, go fuck yourself right up the dick hole. It's a good, it was a good, it was a very good response, actually. I think few uh, podcasts have gone so speedily in the 45 minutes from Malcolm X to your final <laughs> political rallying cry. Thanks yeah. very much, Dane. We Thank didn't even so talk about your sitcom as well, which is, is that, can people still watch that on the BBC? Yes, uh, the, yeah, the, uh, the Sunny D box set is still available on the BBC iPlayer. Um, so please watch it. Uh, for the, some of the reasons we've discussed here is that we uh, I deal with some uh, more superficial uh, woes and then we scratch the surface. And yeah, the idea about the show is, yeah, for you to do stuff that you want to do as opposed to what you think you should do. So please do give it a watch, guys. It's super funny. And you do another one of that? Um, waiting to find out. I am currently waiting to find out the situation with uh, season two of Sunny D. Um, but I'd say, you know, can't take it too seriously. It was a good experience. Um, and if uh, my art is going to be manifested in another way, then that's absolutely fine with me. And it was a great opportunity and experience. Also, and your art will be manifested at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, which is what you're currently yes. working on your new show. Exactly, yeah. And my show this year is called uh, God, which is an acronym for Gold, Oil and Drugs. Uh, and we will now uh, just quickly tell you uh, thank you to some of our Patreon supporters who are Siobhan Williams, Sheridan Miller, Gary Martin, Karen Sanderson and... Gareth Levy... I'm sorry. Gareth Levingston, Stephen Maynard, Nick Keeley, Paul Firth. And the box of books winner is Jen Lawson. Thank you so Have much. Have we got another box of books? No, winner? it's just the one. Shall I well, it should be another one. Yeah, we might as well add another one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the other box of book winner <laughs> is Karen Sanderson. Sure. Brilliant. Okay. Thanks. Bye. 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 We've relaunched and we've got a new website and that also includes other podcasts as well as this and on top of that blog posts by scientists and authors and comedians and if you want to know more about that, in fact you may be there already but it is CosmicShambles.com This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions <laughs>